Good to see everyone this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we will be. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll pick up where we left off. J.J. Um, so helpfully uh, took us through the first 18 verses of Hebrews. Last week, we're going to pick up in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 19 is where we'll be this morning, 19 to 25. It's a fact that uh, certain truths... Uh, in life, they require specific actions. When the, when the light on the dash of your car, that one that's shaped like a gas symbol, comes on, you will be stopping soon. You will either get gas at a gas station or you will call AAA, but you will stop. And when you make a trip to Mission Beach, you will spend some extended time driving around the parking lot looking for a place to park your vehicle. When your pregnant wife walks into the room and utters the words, it's time, your next course of action is very clear. You get your keys and you get in the car with her and you drive. By the way, as a side note, we have six babies in belly in our church right now. Six babies. All right. Praise God for our nursery workers, right? Amen. But in almost every area of life, Uh, there are certain truths which require specific actions. Now, as we're making our way through uh, our study in Hebrews, we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 10 in somewhat of a transitional section in the the letter. Uh, For the first nine chapters, the author has been painting a, really we could say, a theological masterpiece concerning the truth of who Jesus is. He began in chapter 1 with, a, with really a, a breathtaking summary regarding the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And in particular, in the last five chapters, uh, our focus, or the author's focus, has been on the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. We've looked at this in differing ways, in differing manners each week for a few weeks now. We've learned how Jesus is the, the better priest. For he comes from the superior line of Melchizedek. He's the one who brings us near to God and the one who accomplishes our complete salvation. He saves us to the uttermost, the text says. Jesus mediates a better covenant by offering better sacrifices, namely his perfect sinless life for our sins. His blood actually brings us into the heavenly tabernacle and truly cleanses our conscience, the author has said. And because of his death, once for all for sin, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, now forever interceding for his people. For nine chapters, the author has been expounding this truth regarding the person and work of Jesus. But now this morning, his his argument is going to pivot slightly as we move through the rest of the book. Because the truth of chapters 1 through 9... They require specific action. With the foundation of truth regarding who Jesus is and, and, and what in fact he has accomplished, with that foundation laid, the author now prescribes our course of action this morning. In other words, in light of all this truth, he's going to call us to a very specific way of living as God's people. And the importance of this, this, of this section or this little transition, it, it cannot be overstated. Especially given the context to which the author writes. We've noted this, but along the way multiple times. But due to 
Due to pressure and even persecution by the surrounding culture, Jewish believers here were being tempted to turn back to Judaism, to turn back to the Old Covenant, Uh, or God's prior way, we might say, of how God related with His people. In the Old Covenant, we noticed, we, we talked about how God entered into a specific relationship outlined through the book of Exodus, which we worked through prior to getting to Hebrews, that God in the Old Testament had a specific way of relating with His people, which carried specific terms and stipulations and promises and privileges. But the author's point in Hebrews is that now a new covenant has been established. God, in His kind providence, has inaugurated a new way for man to relate to God. And this new covenant is founded on better terms, with far better promises, affording us far better privileges, all of which come to us through Christ, whom the old covenant was in fact established to point us to. And since the inauguration of the new covenant has, been, has made the old obsolete, that's what the end of chapter 8 said, turning back, um, to turn back would equal really turning from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. So to combat that temptation, up until this point, the author's focus has been to present the truth concerning the supremacy of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus in the new covenant. But now the focus shifts to what new covenant faithfulness looks like for us. So possessing the truth of the new covenant requires living as new covenant people. And that's the point of our text this morning as we turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25. And here's my main idea and then I'll read our text and hopefully I will make my, I will try to prove it to you from the rest of our text, our time. So our main idea this morning will be that we respond to the privileges we share in Christ by committing ourselves to faithfulness within the community of Christ. So we respond. How do we respond? We respond to these privileges that come by way of the new covenant. We share those together in Christ. And we respond to those by committing ourselves to faithfulness within the community of Christ, within the body of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 going to begin reading in verses, verse 19 down to verse 25. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as as, as we see the day drawing near. Father, simple prayer this morning. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. By your Spirit, through your Word, amongst your people this morning. In Jesus' name. I want us to notice something before we dive into this text. I want us to, con- to, 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 to point out the author's address here. I want you to see it. He begins with a, an intimate, collective address here to the people. It says, therefore, brothers, or maybe you might have brethren, or brothers and sisters is even a a good translation here. It's a simple address, 
but it does serve as a reminder to these believers that they are in fact part of the household of God whom Christ deems family. This is not the first time we've seen this. So this address, chapter 2 we dealt with this, so it's it's not the first time, but this address really doesn't provide us any new information, but it does serve a very strategic purpose here. By this corporate identifying marker, the author is setting up the corporate responsibilities that will follow. It's essential, I want us to see, from the start, the corporate nature of both these privileges that are outlined in verses 19 to 22, but then there's corporate exhortations that follow in 22 to 25. They go hand in hand here. The the force of the exhortations are grounded in the beauty and the privileges that the author outlines. And this repeated phrase, since we have, makes this clear. Since we have, let us then, is the structure of the author's argument this morning. He's going to say it twice. Since we have, since we have, let us then, let us then, let us then. And by this conjunctive, therefore, at the beginning here, we understand that these privileges are new covenant privileges. As were outlined last week by J.J. did a great job in the first 18 verses here. The author is addressing the new covenant community, the church. He is addressing this local body who are in fact part of the household of God. So through the work of Christ, they are brothers and sisters one to another. We are brothers and sisters one to another. And as such, they share, as such, we share in certain privileges which carry specific corporate responsibilities. Covenant commitment to Christ demands covenant commitment to Christ's people, period. The reality, the benefits, the privileges of the new covenant, of being part of the family of God, demand commitment to new covenant community. That's the flow of the author's thought this morning at a 30,000 foot level. Now I want to dive into it and pull it apart. So with that in mind, we begin first with our shared new covenant privileges in verses 19 to 21. Our shared new covenant privileges. And the first thing we share, he says here, is we share in full access to God. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So as new covenant believers, we are to possess a, a confidence or a boldness, the text says. A confidence to enter the holy places, the very presence of God. Now the the author is less concerned with, maybe we might say, our feeling of confidence. He's more concerned with the basis of our confidence, being the blood of Jesus, His all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. So confidence or boldness does not come by any virtue or effort or even feeling within us. As believers, our confidence is derived from God's grace, the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. So entering God's presence was was anything but joyful and done boldly in the Old Covenant. We spent multiple chapters through our study in Exodus dealing with this whole process. But due to sin, it was a a terrifying thing. And something only done by the high priest once a year, and not without extreme measures put in place. But not for us. As Christians, as New Covenant believers, we possess far greater privileges We enter joyfully and boldly because we enter not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through by way of the precious blood of Christ. we got to remember here the author's analogy that he's been making between the earthly tent and the heavenly tabernacle. 
As he alludes to it again in verse 20, speaking of, it says there, this new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Jesus has opened a, a new way to God through the curtain. This curtain or veil was the barrier separating the holy place from the most holy place in the tabernacle, depicting the divide between a holy God and sinful man. And now we've gained access to God, it says, through His flesh, through the death of Jesus. Matthew, the end of his gospel, he records upon the death of Jesus that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Chapter 27, verse 51. The dividing wall between a holy God and sinful man was removed, was torn in two, was rent anew by the atoning work of Christ. And the entrance we enjoy is now described as a new and living way. Most certainly an allusion to the superiority of the new covenant. It's new. And it's living. Because it's inaugurated by the resurrected Christ. Who forever serves as our high priest. There is no need for a succession plan for this high priest. For he forever serves as our high priest through his indestructible life. The author has already told us. So as new covenant believers, we enjoy unhindered access and fellowship with God because of Jesus' death. And because of his indestructible ongoing life for us. This access has been granted by means of his flesh. Which was torn and bloodied on our behalf. So as believers we share in this privilege of unhindered access as brothers and sisters. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Who dwells within us. As new covenant Christians we possess the promise of God's perpetual presence. With us, in us. We have unhindered access to God, something the people of God prior to Christ knew nothing of. This should radically shape our lives. I, it comes to mind to me the disciples listening in to Jesus' praying, they listening to his prayer life, something they did often. They were praying men, but they noticed something entirely different in Jesus' prayer life. There was an intimacy and a proximity to Jesus' prayer life, which led them to ask the question, teach us, please, to pray like this. Brothers and sisters, through the blood of Jesus, through the new and living way he opened for us, we share in such intimacy and such proximity, for we have full access to God. The question there is, do we take advantage of that? But we have full access, we also have Superior advocacy advocacy here. And furthering the argument in verse 21 says, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So in the old covenant, the high priest represented the people before God. He served as their advocate. He wore 12 stones on on his breastplate and upon his shoulders, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. We even read in Exodus chapter 28, 12, We we read back then how Aaron was to bear their names before God on his two shoulders for remembrance. That was the purpose of these stones he was wearing. The priests in the Old old Covenant advocated for the people by bearing their names before God. The author of Hebrews is telling us that we too have an advocate. We also have one who bears our names before God. He's a far better advocate though. Jesus is a superior high priest who serves from the superior line. 
He is the sinless one who offered the superior sacrifice himself. And he is the one who stands forever in resurrected power as our eternal advocate. He bears our names not just on stones and in, 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 in a breastplate and on his shoulders, but in his nail-scarred hands and his pierced side. Jesus is our advocate. What does that truth mean for you? When you sin, when you fail, when you make a mess of things, who do you trust in? Who do you run to? Do you trust in the advocacy of Jesus for you or do you try to advocate for yourself? In other words, when you sin, when you fail, do you try to justify your sin, hide your sin, work extra hard at putting on a better face, clean your act up, present the better you, Start showing up more to church. Get back involved in fellowship. And when you sin and when you make a mess of yourself, do you confess your sin to Christ? Do you confess your sin and believe the gospel anew by trusting in Jesus' advocacy for you? Do you allow Him to bear your name? Or do you find yourself constantly trying to prove your name? As New Covenant believers, we possess full access. We possess superior Advocacy by Jesus. He is our new and living way. He stands as our great high priest over the house of God. It's those privileges we share in as new covenant believers. It's those privileges we share in as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's these privileges which serve as the basis for now what follows. It's these privileges that serve as the basis for how now we're called to live. So with this proper foundation, the author now calls these believers to respond. So I want to spend the rest of our time in 20, verses 22 to 25 considering our collective new covenant call. The author now exhorts these believers to covenant obedience in light of their covenant privileges. Since we have full access to God through the blood of, of Christ, since we have a superior advocate, we are to live a specific way. And this begins first with us Drawing near, verse, 20 says, verse 22 says, look at it, it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We're translated draw near, it's a favored one by the author, right? We've seen it multiple times. Back in chapter 4, verse 16, he encouraged believers to draw near to the throne of grace with boldness. Chapter 7, when speaking of the better hope in Jesus, we were told to draw near to God. Here we find this same call, but, but it includes here a description as to the manner in which we are to draw near. It says, first, we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We remember the author's previous warning, the strong warning that we considered in multiple places, chapter 3, chapter 6, regarding the, regarding the danger of an evil, unbelieving heart, leading those to fall away from the living God. So this true heart being described here is a believing heart. And a believing heart is a heart that turns to God. It's a heart that is attuned and ready to obey. It is the new covenant heart. It is the heart of flesh that has been replaced by the heart of stone, which the prophet Jeremiah spoke of and which was referenced back in chapter 8. A true heart is a regenerate heart. It's a believing heart, which is to be characterized, he says, by full assurance of faith. 
And we're to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Just as the sprinkled blood of the old covenant covered the people, the blood of Jesus sprinkles clean believers under the new covenant. But where the the blood of bulls and goats was external and could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper, the blood of Jesus removes our guilt and washes our conscience clean. We're no longer bound and terrorized by our sin. Our hearts have been cleansed from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Washing here, of course, is a symbolic way of referencing the old covenant cleansing necessary for worship. These physical washings, which dealt merely with the flesh, were always meant to point forward to the internal cleansing found in Christ's atoning work, which we're focusing on here. In light of our new covenant privilege, we are called to draw near to God, which can actually, we can actually do through His regenerating cleansing work. And this is not a one-time drawing near thing. It's an ongoing thing. It requires effort and intentionality. Simply having access doesn't mean we draw near. Right? No more than you receiving a free gym membership necessarily means you're going to have a fit body. In light of the access made available to us through the shed blood of Jesus, the author exhorts us now to draw near. And that's what new covenant faithfulness looks like. And again, this is done in the and, and this will be done in full assurance, which of course speaks to the power and necessity of the gospel. Apart from Christ, we cannot draw near to God. The barrier of our sin, the reality of his holiness is too wide, too strong. There's too much of an expanse. But now as believers, we can, in fact, and are called to draw near to the throne of grace, as chapter 4 tells us. We come as new covenant believers by grace, in light of grace, to the all-gracious God. Our call is to come in light of the privilege of full access we share. Verse 23, there's a second exhortation here. It's, it's, but it's intimately tied to the first. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's the third time the, the readers have been, we've been exhorted to hold on or hold firm. We've talked about this multiple weeks. But perseverance is the call of the book of Hebrews. Endurance is the plea. And, the, and drawing near to God, in fact, outlines the means in which we persevere. And our perseverance is bound up with our belief, with our confession. We're to hold fast to the confession of our hope. This confession is the reference to our faith. It's the doctrine of Christ that's been laid out from chapter 1 on. It's the affirmation regarding the supremacy of Christ's person and the sufficiency of His sacrifice for sin. The substance of our confession provides the affirmation of our trust and that assured hope of glory at His return. All of which serves as motivation for our endurance or perseverance. We're to hold fast, hold firm, and we're to do so, it says what? Without wavering, the text says. And why are we to hold our confession without wavering? Because the author says our, our faith is so strong 
because our spiritual strength is so viable. I talked to a few of you at the door, and praise God we have a church that's honest. How are you doing today? I'm limping in here. I'm limping. I'm here, but I'm limping. No, we're not, we're not called to, to hold our confession without wavering because our faith is strong. Because we have some sort of strength in ourselves. We hold our confession without wavering because he whom our confession rests in is faithful, the text says. Our endurance, our holding fast is fueled by the guaranteed fact that we will receive all that God says has, will come to pass. God is faithful. I just want you to stop for a minute and just consider the fact that apart from Christ, every single person in your life will let you down. They will fail you. We have some people here today who just got married and are getting married. Your spouse will let you down. Honeymoon might not tell you that, but you'll find out real quick. Your best friends in life will fail you. Your pastor will fail you. Parents, your kids will fail you. Kids, your parents will fail you. God will never fail you. He is faithful. He will do what he says he will do. Faithful obedience, our endurance, our holding fast is the proper response to God's faithfulness. But, brothers and sisters, here is where knowing what the Bible says is essential. Knowing and resting in God's faithfulness demands you know what and to whom God has promised He will remain faithful to. God's faithfulness is not tied to your wants and desires. God's faithfulness is not contingent upon your self-prescribed plan for your life. Judging God's faithfulness by some standard or some expectation you've created rather than what He's promised in His Word is a hollow, difficult thing for your life. It's like standing outside on a cold night waiting on an Uber that's never coming. God's faithfulness is tied to His glory, His purposes, and His Son through your life. We hold firm to our confession because the one whom we confess is perfectly faithful. In verse 24, we have a third exhortation. It says, let us consider how to stir one another on to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the lack of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day dawning near, drawing near. It's necessary for those who draw near through Christ. It's necessary for those who hold their confession together in anticipation of our promised hope. It's necessary for us to stir up one another in a life of love. Mutual love and responsibility for one another creates and sustains a community who endures in the faith. The author has already instructed us back in chapter 3 to exhort one another daily so that an evil, unbelieving heart does not take root in you. Leading you to fall away from the living God. And here the call is for us to stir up. To encourage one another. To love and good deeds. Or love and good works. The word stir up is a very strong word. 
It's the same word used in the negative sense to describe the division that took place between Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15, verse 39. By a strong disagreement, they were stirred up to division and parted ways. That same force of the word, though in a positive sense, is what's applied here. What's to be stirred up within the church is love manifested in unity and fellowship, revealed through good works, resulting in endurance. For love and good works amongst the people of God testify that God's grace is at work in the church. And God's grace is what provides us the assurance of our perseverance, not ourself. But none of this can happen apart from believers gathering regularly together in a specific way with a specific group of people. What's clear behind this text is some are making the habit of not meeting together. Probably for fear of persecution and discrimination by the culture. The author pleads with them to see the danger of such a decision. And while this course of action may, it may divert some disdain or hostility from the culture. It may very well invite the wrath of God. By the person drifting in fact away from Christ. The author has already spoken of us being careful not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, leading us to fall away, to drift away from the risen Christ. Rather than neglecting to meet together, we are to encourage one another and do so all the more as we see the day of the Lord's return drawing near when we will receive our final deliverance. As history comes to a close, the Bible makes clear that times will most assuredly get more stressful for believers, more dangerous for believers, that dangers and persecution and things will only be on the rise. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 24, verses 11 through 12, in the last days many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because of this truth, every one of us need to heed the words of verse 25. Faithful Christian living will only continue to become more and more challenging in this day as the day of Christ draws near. Political pressure and persecution will make confessing the name of Christ more costly as the day draws near. If we're shocked by that, that's our fault. We need to read our Bibles more. And the seductive prevalence of ever-increasing sin and immorality will only rise. We've seen this, right? What was once shameful is now celebrated and highlighted. While we should mourn this, we should not be shocked by this. The Bible speaks to this. But notice the author's response. That's what we need to see here. In light of this reality, he elevates what? He elevates the central importance of us gathering together as saints. To remain faithful in the face of sin. To engage in the battle of unbelief that rages in our heart. To not drift in light of the seductive pool of our culture. What is the author's prescription? Go to church. Don't neglect to gather with God's people. With the covenant community. Now, of course, this phrase gathering or meeting together means more than just going to church. Slipping in for a sermon and as important as that is and slipping out. Note the language here. I want you to see it. Consider how to stir up one another to loving good works. Consider is a, 
is a word demanding understanding. It's a word of knowing well. Considering it takes reflection, it takes intentionality, which requires both proximity and frequency. And then notice the word translated encourage, which carries the notion of calling someone or urging someone or employing someone. All of which requires commitment and action and investment in one another's lives. And the author speaks of not neglecting to meet together. He, may, he, he means way more than simply showing up. He assumes investment. He assumes commitment. He assumes accountability. He assumes a sense of loving care and spiritual responsibility for one another. Now in terms of application, I, I want to call us back to the collective nature of this passage. That's why I began there. In light of the author's collective address, brothers and sisters, and the collective privileges we share in, he calls us to a life of faithfulness which demands one another. Since we share, since we have, since we have, let us then. Let's not forget, again, what's behind this passage is the crisis of drifting or the battle for unbelief. Some within this community are turning from Christ and falling back to Judaism. In response, the author has been laying out with theological precision just why this is such a terrible decision. Why this is so stupid. The old covenant was always meant to lead to the new. Jesus and the new covenant has inaugurated is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And with his coming, the old is obsolete. It's not that something's wrong with the old covenant. It's that it served its place until Jesus came. Its purpose. There's nothing, no one more supreme, more superior than Jesus. He's better. We come to God through him and through him alone. Now that's the theological truth which these believers are to endure in. But endurance demands that by God's grace, endurance demands that by God's grace, we know that truth of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished. We know that truth. We believe that truth. We remain in that truth. That's what endurance requires. And God has given us certain means of grace for accomplishing that end. He has given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his people, the church, the covenant community. We respond to the truth of our new covenant privileges by committing ourselves to faithfulness within the covenant community. Since we have access to God through Christ, our advocate, who bears our name before God, we draw near to God. We hold our confession firm and we do so by committing ourselves to faithfulness within the covenant community, within the church. We draw near to God together as we gather to sing the truths of the gospel. We draw near to God as we unite in prayer, as we unite in the preaching of the word, as we partake of the ordinances. And this empowers us to hold our confession firm with full assurance. Look, your attendance and participation in this body is a confession Regarding your dependence upon Christ. Is your confession regarding the power of the gospel. And this and by this we are helping each other in Christ. When we limp. 
when we face times in life when we struggle to believe, when we struggle to persevere, when we struggle to, to live the life of faith, God provides us grace through the body and others who will help us walk forward. When my faith doesn't feel like for assurance. You ever been there? Your faith always, you wake up every day with your faith feeling like full assurance? Please tell me how. Mine doesn't. What do I need in that moment? I need to see yours. I need to hear yours. I need to hear you confess the truth of the gospel when you sing. I need to see you cry and walk up here and take the Lord's Supper and go back to your seat. I need to see that. It keeps me. It helps me endure. It keeps me persevering in the faith. I need to hear your struggles. And I need to see you faithfully following Jesus. It's a powerful thing to see, to hear, to participate in worshiping Jesus with a group of people who you know are equally as sinful as you. Who you know equally deserve the wrath of God like you. But who equally share in the glorious inheritance of the saints like you. As difficult as it may be sometimes. In light of our shared privileges that come with the new covenant, we're called to commit our lives to faithfulness within the covenant community, which serves as a means of our endurance together. The fleshing out of this reality is, is really what provides the rationale for healthy membership within a local church. Maybe you're here today and you're wondering, why is church membership even necessary. I mean, like you don't find the word in the Bible. You don't. Well, I want to give you some reasons, at least three. I could go to multiple places, but I'm going to stay in this text. I want to give you three reasons from this text why membership in a local church is a biblical thing. The first one is this. Church membership provides the names and faces for whom you are called to carry out the one another commands of the Bible. So church membership, it gives you real people, faces and names, for whom you are called to carry out the one another commands of the Bible. Because that's not a suggestion, that's a command in the Bible. Membership in a local church provides you real names and real faces for you, to, for you to consider how to stir them up to love and good deeds. Membership provides you names and faces for whom you can encourage all the more as the day of Christ draws near. Now, is this possible without membership? Yeah. You can do these things. But who's doing them for you? Who have you given access to? For someone to do them in your life. Who are you allowing to stir you up? Who are you inviting to encourage you as the day draws near? Membership provides the names and faces not only of those for whom you will carry out the one another's, but the ones who will carry them out for you as a means of your faithfulness and endurance. And that's the second point. That church membership is you entrusting yourself into the loving care and authority God has provided as a means of your endurance. Church membership is your entrusting yourself into the loving care and the authority God has provided as a means of your endurance, the local church. To be more pre precise from the context of Hebrews, church, church membership is you giving authority to a specific group of people to keep you from drifting from Christ. 
It is you trusting the means God has provided the covenant community so that you are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a real question to consider. Who is committed to your faithfulness? Who is committed to seeing your confession endure to the end? Who have you given authority to lovingly go get you if you begin to drift? Membership is you trusting yourself into such loving care and authority for the purpose of your endurance. Thirdly, church membership is how we uphold the biblical definition of a church, a community of love. It's it's impossible for you to stir up Someone to love and good deeds who does not have the power God has given them to such love and to such good deeds. Right? Membership is the means by which we know who believers are. Who actually have the spirit of God in them and can in turn live the life of good, of love and good deeds the Bible calls us to. Like it's a biblical and a necessary thing to uphold, to, to hold Christians to Christian standards. Right? Head nod? We're good there? It's a biblical and a good thing to hold Christians to Christian standards. We're not loving people if we don't do that. Perfection? No, because we're sinners, just like the person we're trying to hold accountable. But it's a good thing, a godly thing, a new covenant thing to hold Christians to Christian standards. But it is an unbiblical and a disastrous thing to try to hold a non-Christian to Christian standards. Anyone can come to church And anyone can say they are a Christian. But membership is a mechanism. I say it this way in a more familiar sense. It is the context. It is the family to which our faithfulness is put on display and held accountable. And it is a means to loving the unbeliever. We want all the unbelievers here we want in this room. I hope we have to give up our seats to people who don't know Jesus. We don't want them here. I want them to come to know Jesus. We have to be clear on what does the life of Jesus look like? What does the call of the Christian look like? The, Christian, uh, the life of the Christian look like? This is found in the church. So brothers and sisters, as New Covenant believers, we enjoy wonderful privileges. We share in full access. We, we share in superior advocacy through the blood of Jesus. And in light of these privileges, God calls us to respond in faithfulness to God's people, the covenant community. We're to draw near. We're to hold our confession firm. We're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And we're to encourage one another to faithfulness as the day of Christ draws near. Possessing the truth of the new covenant requires living a specific way as new covenant people. We respond to the privileges we enjoy in Christ by committing ourselves to faithfulness within Christ's community, the church. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are a good and gracious God. That our worth is found in you and you alone. And God, thank you for the means of grace that you've given us to endure. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. 
You've given us your people. God, let us see those things as such a blessing for you. And God, let us receive the, uh, the blessings that you've given us by committing ourselves to faithfulness. I, I thank you for the faithfulness of this church. I thank you for so many people who I could call out as examples in this church that have been this, what this text is to me. And God, I, I pray that we would see the riches of Christ afresh this morning. There's no one more supreme, no one more superior than Jesus. There's nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. God, help us respond rightly to him. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.